Welcome to Advocation Change It Up, a new podcast series hosted by Dr. Karen Liller, a professor at the USF College of Public Health and director of the Activist Lab. Hello and welcome to Advocation Change It Up, the podcast series of the University of South Florida College of Public Health Activist Lab. I'm Dr. Karen Liller, a professor at the College of Public Health and director of the Activist Lab, and I'm joined by one of our student advisory board members, Rashmi Mather. So how are you, Rashmi? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Dr. Liller. How about you? I'm fine. Thank you. The Activist Lab at the college prepares our students to be exemplary advocates and leaders in public health. And if you just Google us at USF College of Public Health Activist Lab, you'll see all the educational programs we do, our boot camps, our seminars. We do research on a variety of public health topics and advocacy and work to assure our students have practice experience in the community at the state and national levels. This podcast involves talking with public health leaders and advocates whose work has led to great improvements in public health. We'll be talking in each podcast with a guest on a particular public health issue, and we'll end each podcast by asking how we as the community can advocate for change. We're now working on our second podcast series. The first one was on racism, and you can find that on our website, but this one is focused on environmental health and climate change. We're so excited that we received a civic engagement microgrant from Research America to develop and publish this series. We hope to not only learn from the podcast experts, but also develop an advocacy plan for the state and even beyond. But before we begin, I have to add, the views expressed reflect those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the University of South Florida. So without further ado, let's talk with our advocation guests, Drs. Jeff Cunningham and Maya Trotz. Both are professors in the USF College of Engineering. Dr. Cunningham has diverse research interests, but has focused principally on the fate, transport, and remediation of contaminants in the environment. His current students are working on projects related to the management of nitrogen and phosphorus during wastewater treatment, the recovery of valuable metals from spent rechargeable batteries, multiphase fluid flow through porous media, and the storage of carbon dioxide in deep saline aquifers as a method of mitigating global climate change. Dr. Trotz's areas of interest lie at the nexus of geochemistry, water quality, and global community sustainability and education. Her students are currently investigating reef and marine-inspired land-based solutions that include green infrastructure for stormwater management and resource recovery for municipal and on-site wastewater in Tampa, Belize, and Barbados. She currently directs Strong Coasts, a collaborative National Science Foundation National Research Traineeship Program with the University of the Virgin Islands to foster food, energy, and water solutions for coastal communities. So hello, Drs. Cunningham and Trotz. Hi, Karen. Hello, Hi. Karen and Rashmi. Hi, Rashmi. Hi. Hi, everybody. So everybody said hi. Okay, welcome. So both of you are doing fascinating work for the environment. I'd like to start off by asking each of you to discuss your research in a little more detail. And what do you see are some of the greatest environmental health issues we are facing as a state, as a country, maybe the world? And are these issues new ones? Are they old ones? Are they getting worse, getting better? So let's start with you, Dr. Cunningham. All right. Um, yeah, so as you mentioned in the intro, I, my students work on a number of different research topics. Mm -hmm. um, 
which are all in some way related to in environmental health and, and public health as it pertains to environmental quality. Um, with regard to the big challenges, I think yeah. we're kind of looking at sort of a different, a couple different time scales. We have sort of immediate challenges, which are things like how do we make sure that everybody has access to clean water right. and safe water. And then I think we've got um, on a larger time scale, I think the... Um, you know that the thousand-pound elephant is uh, global climate change, right? And that just impacts us in all different aspects of environmental health, mm-hmm. um, and that's I think going to be an increasing challenge for the next few decades, right? Um, so that those are those are what I see as being the big challenges. So um, you know, some short-term ones, and then and then one big long. The one big one. one with the climate change will be the huge one, right? right? That's what we're hearing from a lot of our uh, experts on this topic. Uh, how about you, Dr. Trotz? I think that's a really deep question, Karen. <laughs> and it is. My it's like a most comprehensive exam question, right? <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to give you a kind of comprehensive exam around the world answer. All right. There my you go. Most um, direct answer to that is that I see structural and or systemic biases or racism mm. as the greatest environmental health issue. Wow. Okay. That is the way in which our policies, practices, the way we work, perpetuate racial or other group inequity, many times with deep historical roots that remain ingrained in our societies. Mm-hmm. And I think to make sure that we're on the same page, I'd first like to look at how our institutions refer to environmental health and then discuss what COVID-19 is teaching us about that link between mm-hmm. environmental and human health. Okay. I, I work a lot with anthropology and marine sciences, and so the interdisciplinarity of that work tells me it's important that we have some common, you know, right. taxonomy <laughs> so we're on the same page. Uh-huh. And I also do a lot of community-engaged work. So I think the, the what I'm about to say will sort of reveal the type of research that I do also. Mm-hmm. So the World Health Organization says that clean air, stable climate, adequate water, sanitation and hygiene, safe use of chemicals, protection from radiation, healthy and safe workplaces, sound agricultural practices, health, supportive cities, and built environments, and a preserved nature are all prerequisites for good health. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. The U.S. National Institute of Health Envir- Environmental Health Sciences is known to make contributions to scientific knowledge of human health and the environment and to health and well-being of people everywhere. Mm-hmm. I, Googled, I Googled these for <laughs> earlier today uh, based excellent. on this topic. Yeah, uh-huh. and, and I just need to you know, look at what health and well-being means. And WHO defines health as the extent to which an individual or group is able to realize aspirations and satisfy needs and to change or cope with the environment. And they mm-hmm. see health as a resource for everyday life. Right. It is a positive concept, emphasizing social and personal resource, mm-hmm. as well as physical capacities. Whereas the CDC says that well-being is a positive outcome that is meaningful for people and from many sectors of society, because it tells us that people perceive that their lives are going well. Mm-hmm. Now, I doubt that today you will find many people in the world who perceive that their lives are going well. Mm-hmm. We've lost over 2.3 million people to COVID-19 in, in a right. year. Right. And every, every day we see the high levels of inequity in terms of risk of exposure, access to personal protective equipment vaccines, care, education, food, jobs, and the list just goes on. Right. And many of those inequities align with wealth. Mm-hmm. And in the U.S., 
wealth is clearly linked to race and ethnicity. Data shows that black wealth in the U.S. stands at 10% of white wealth for the last 60 years. Hmm. And more than ever before, we are learning of the impact of structural racism on communities of color. Exactly. And I just want to, if I could just interject that whole structural racism issue, when I was talking about our previous podcast series, we looked at all of that. You know, we looked at it in various different facets. But I think the way you're referring to this now with the environment is is quite interesting. It, it totally aligns. I mean, in, in civil and environmental engineering, we have right. built infrastructure like highways I-275 and I-4 in Tampa that disrupted and debilitated urban black communities and mm-hmm. over 100 black businesses. Wow. And communities that are filled with people who are redlined for loans and in which housing prices and therefore wealth were depressed. Mm-hmm. And communities that today have some of the highest levels of incidence in, in our county, for example, for diabetes, high cholesterol, right. cholesterol, high blood pressure, stroke, and obesity. Mm-hmm. And what we see are local black leaders from places like East Tampa and Tampa Heights who are emphasizing a drive to change things for improved health. In the mid-2000s, Mrs. Evangeline Best championed mm-hmm. beautification of stormwater ponds. They increased communities' access to waterscapes and green spaces for mm-hmm. exercise, right. socialization, education, and biodiversity. In 2015, Mrs. Lena Young led a call against highway expansion, asking us to instead champion mass transit. Mm -hmm. And today, Ms. Connie Burton champions safe and affordable housing with low levels of things like mold and indoor air quality. Mm -hmm. And all of these women advocated for increased access to healthy food and an end to food apartheid. So while I think COVID-19 is definitely a pressing environmental health issue today, it unearths these larger structural issues that contribute to some of the more significant causes of death in the world, like Mm. heart disease. Um, And so I think unless we address those structural inequities, we will Mm -hmm. perpetuate places where we live and environments in which we live that contribute to ill health Mm -hmm. and and terrible, you know, not good well-being. No, I think that's such a good line of thought because, you know, in public health, this is what we're all about. You know, we talk about this concept of health being obviously more than just the absence of disease, right? We talk about it as being encompassing so many other areas and how that is so related back to, as you said, the economics, the wealth, structural racism. It kind of is a cycle as we take a look at it. And almost on all these podcasts, we mention that in one way or another. Rashmi, do you have some questions for Drs. Cunningham or Trotz? Uh, I have a question for Dr. Trotz. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to know what the situation of the water quality has been ever since the COVID-19 pandemic with our quarantine and our lockdown measures uh, because there's nobody coming on cruises or the industries are closed. They're not pumping their uh, pollutants into water and especially the situation in Tampa Bay. Thank you, Rashmi. I, I think there are two two ways to look at this. So it could be water quality for what we might drink. So coming out of the tap with closed buildings. And so what happens is you have stagnation of water in your pipe, mm-hmm. which then could degrade quality. So for example, on campus, when we op- reopened, there would have been practices to flush, flush your system. 
mm-hmm. uh, in places that have high levels of tourism that may have seen drop in tourist arrivals, hotels are probably doing the same thing. When when new guests do come, mm-hmm. they will have to flush their systems to ensure right. that the you know that you don't have water that no longer has disinfection um, mm-hmm. capability in it mm-hmm. to flush through. And then you spoke of, of cruise ships. Um, I work a lot with people who do car restoration work who uh, tend to be a little relieved right now with the lower number of cruise ships and uh, mass tourism that we may see in, in, in beach places that mm-hmm. have help, still have some, some type of reef. And so the water quality implication there is that with the absence of these industries that don't have proper practices for wastewater disposal, and some of them do, some don't, um, many hotels that you find in, in the Caribbean where I work may not have the best practices for wastewater disposal, which goes directly mm-hmm. into, into the sea. So high levels of nutrients and so on might be coming in. So you probably are seeing uh, improved water quality in situations like that. So there's sort of two different ways yeah. one could, could look at it. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Dr. Cunningham, do you have anything on that? Um, yeah, so there has been um, some research published recently that, that uh, supports what Dr. Tross was just saying, which is that waterways that are um, traditionally impacted by anthropogenic activities and industries uh, water quality in those waterways might actually be improving a little bit right. um, because of reduced industrial activity. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there could be some that are maybe going the other way because uh, people's behavior patterns are changing. You know, the, the, where, where we spend our time is changing. Um, so as our behavior patterns change, we might also be you know, possibly um, impacting some waterways more because they're, they're getting a, a higher load than before. But, but most of what I've seen so far is that, um, yeah, as industrial activity has declined a little bit due to the yeah. pandemic, um, then those waterways are, are actually improving a little bit in terms of water quality. Right. We talked on our last podcast that the air is better as well, right? Our right. air quality has certainly improved. So our air and our water quality have gotten better, but certainly we hope to get rid of COVID-19. Yeah. It, at it, least I, <laughs> I don't, it just doesn't mean we're coming out ahead on balance, but at least there are a couple, you know, a couple little side benefits. Good. Yeah. Thank you. So Next, uh, I'd like to talk about climate change a little bit more. Everybody's so interested in it. Everybody wants to talk about it now. Now that we've joined again the Paris Agreement, right, and people are excited uh, about talking about environmental health issues. But can each of you tell me a little bit about how your research has interfaced with climate change and um, also talk a little bit about what we can do as a community to, um, you know, to to decrease some of the effects that we're seeing of climate change now and into the future. So Dr. Cunningham, we'll start with you. Okay, sure. So um, so the, the research that I've done um, related to climate change is, is sort of on the, uh, the technical side of addressing climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, Dr. Trotz has been involved in, in these research projects with me as well. Right. Um, we're looking at the, the possibility of storing carbon dioxide underground. Yeah, if you can, that. If you can capture carbon dioxide from a large stationary source like a power plant, and if you can store it underground and you can keep it there, mm-hmm. then that means you're keeping it out of the atmosphere. Right. Um, and that can slow down climate change. Um, I think this is kind of a, 
a, a, a short-term solution. I don't think this is sort of viable long-term. Right. You know, long-term, we need different solutions to this. Mm-hmm. Um, but as kind of a, a, a stopgap measure or a Band-Aid, I think this can help um, slow down climate change in the in the short term if we're able to reduce atmospheric levels of carbon dioxide by putting the by putting the carbon dioxide putting somewhere it else somewhere else right. yeah getting it right. getting it out right. out of the way uh, can the community help with that or do anything about that or is that more of a technical correction uh, yeah it's it's a technical correction and so what what we really need um, it, I think is we we need to incentivize that mm-hmm. right there needs right. to be an economic benefit so that. Mm-hmm. Um, large power plants will want to do that or, or yeah. energy generators will want to do that. So, and that I think has to come from um, at, a, at a larger level. So I actually yeah. think, um, I think we need, in addition to whatever the community can do, I think we need large structural changes where, mm-hmm. uh, where we recognize the, um, the, the cost of environmental damage caused by uh, greenhouse gas emissions and climate change mm-hmm. and where those costs are mm-hmm. accounted for right. um, in our economic systems mm-hmm. and, and in our energy prices. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if if certain behaviors are incentivized, then I think we'll start seeing uh, implementation of the of those types of technologies. But if there's no in- economic incentive, then, People, yeah. then nobody's going to do it. Right. We talk about the market-driven society, right? right. Until we handle that, right? We're not going to see the changes right. that much. Uh, how about you, Dr. Trotz? Yes, Karen. Um interesting question and I would I will start off with the following up on Dr. Cunningham's discussion on CO2 sequestration and it's mm-hmm. interesting because we we live in a city that is you know we use we use coal right. and and how do you how do you wrap your head around that when you're also one of the places that is most vulnerable to things like sea level rise yeah knowing full well that burning coal produces greenhouse gases. Mm-hmm. So, and so I think it's a little circuitous for us to, 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 you know, think that we will just put it back into the CO2 into the ground to get ourselves out of the system. And Emera, who manages our, our, who now manages the utility in Tampa, also manages the utility in Barbados. Okay. Mind you, uh-huh. the size there is much smaller, but the government has committed to going 100% renewable by 2030. Mm. Whether you'll see that happen or not, there is a commitment to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they're, right now they run on, on a lot of diesel. Um, so I, I think ha- the work that we do in training students to have some level of system thinking to look at yes. how things are interconnected and uh-huh. to also have experiences internationally so they could compare, you know, what are the leverage points in different spaces, I think would be how some of the work I do with, with training of, of graduate students in particular mm-hmm. interfaces with climate change. Right. Some of the first projects that we've done here on education, in particular with K-12, through look at how you would, first of all, start distinguishing between things like weather and climate mm-hmm. and linking it to something like stormwater. So every time it rains, what happens? Mm-hmm. And then linking that to sort of climate change predictions that say, you know, well, if you have systems with increased intensity of rainfall, mm-hmm. can you actually manage the stormwater that, that mm. you know, when it, when it rains, which then leads you into, well, what is a solution? Because 
these intense rainfall events are happening today. Right. Uh, so we have glimpses of what we might experience more of in the future. Uh-huh. And the students are able to then look at solutions that mm. might be what we call green infrastructure, where you, you know, start to restore some of the hydrology around the buildings right. that we've built. And then that leads now into, okay, so if we want to do this, how do we replicate it across the community so that everybody's lawn may have this? Yes. And uh, when you, the work that we've done in East Tampa, I spoke about earlier, which is a majority African-American community, your community was really supportive of, of doing this on people's residences, where yeah. the city intends, in, you know, they normally like to manage city property right. so this crossover on uh-huh. residential, residential yeah is it's still it's still something that needs to be worked out across the u.s uh-huh. but the the community there when they started to look at it then they were like well wait a minute we're growing these florida natives we are a community that does not have a lot of access potentially to fresh food mm-hmm. can these things also safely grow food Hmm. Uh, so that's sort of research that I know my colleagues, Dr. Man- Mahmoud Nachabe and Serena Ergas, are looking into right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you actually take stormwater running off of your roofs, your driveways, oh, and so on, so and remove some of the contaminants that we right. might have there so that you can actually grow, grow food on, on it? I think the most interesting thing about that, too, is, that, again, it's both what you and, and Dr. Cunningham have been saying. It is a system, right? You can't, you know, right. if you see those connections, and even if you talk to K through 12, right, even kindergartners or first graders, second graders, if they begin to see the connection, right, between weather and climate, as you said, and the after effects, I think that's all the better. And that's really what where we're going in public health, too, you know, taking a look at everything through these system lenses versus individual, you know, individuals, enterprise, I mean, they're all make, they all get to a system level, a policy change, but, but looking at this, you know, more cohesively and not just every parcel of it, right? Just individual, just interpersonal, just community, but really tying it all together. Right. And, and, and engineers, um, engineers have been thinking about systems for a while, but uh-huh. we you know, kind of traditionally have only sort of looked at the, 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 um, the technical or scientific aspects right. of the systems exactly. and what environmental engineers are starting to do now. And, and something where, where my colleague, Dr. Trotz is really a leader is recognizing the interconnectedness between the natural systems and the scientific systems and the social systems and the communities and right. the people um, that are impacted and, and that impact the environment. Um, yeah. So that, that recognition of the connectedness between uh, the social systems and the scientific systems is kind of an important advancement in engineering. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and it's good for folks that work you know, in public health and think to understand all of that and to work together and be all part of the team. I think versus mm-hmm. having engineers over here, you know, right. public health workers <laughs> over here or whatever. Yeah, so it's it's great to be part of that. So Rashmi, do you have any follow-up questions? Uh, I have a question for Dr. Cunningham. Uh, with the Flint, Michigan crisis, with the contamination of water, uh, do you see that happening in any other communities? Uh, and especially, can is there a potential of contamination, a similar crisis in Tampa? So um, the, the issue with Flint was that... Um, well, there are number of <laughs> there there are a number of causes of it. Um, but from the um, from the scientific standpoint, what happened was uh, there's aging infrastructure, um, and the service lines that connect uh, the water mains to um, to to individual homeowners' premise plumbing 
um, was made out of lead, and when the chemistry of the water changed, that caused corrosion of those lead surface lines um, and resulted in the, the crisis that got a lot of national attention. Um, so could it happen in Tampa? Um, I, I don't think most of the um, most of the infrastructure in Tampa has lead in the plumbing. Some of the older communities might. Um, so with regard to that specific question, um, I'm not too concerned. But with regard to the general question that you asked about, could it happen somewhere else? Um, I am concerned because we have a, a number of issues such as aging infrastructure and also some of the topics that Dr. Trotz was talking about earlier where uh, there are certain communities that um, uh, really are, are influenced more heavily and more strongly by, um, by environmental degradation or by um, lack of access to adequate infrastructure. Uh, and so these things kind of compound each other. Um, so long-term systemic racism and environmental injustice um, yeah. affects more, certain communities uh, more strongly than others. And then when you couple that with the aging infrastructure that we have in the United States and the need to upgrade infrastructure. I mean, compared to the compared to most of the world, we're doing great, but that doesn't mean right. that we don't have a lot that we need to improve in terms of our infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I don't know that we're going to see a repeat of that of the exact problem that happened in Flint, but I do think that we are vulnerable to similar types of problems where uh, aging infrastructure is going to mm -hmm. lead to environmental problems and that those problems are probably going to hit uh, minority communities and disadvantaged yeah. communities a lot more strongly than wealthy communities. Right. And that's so unfortunate. We see that in so many situations, right, in so many conditions. So, Dr. Trotz, would you like to add anything to that? I would add that in Tampa, what we experienced, I think it was in summer 2018, mm -hmm. when the newspaper ran an article on lead levels in our yeah. schools. Mm -hmm. And those levels, the school had been testing and replacing water fountains and other types of oh, yes. piping this. systems within mm -hmm. the school without informing parents mm -hmm. that this was happening. So that was problematic. And the levels for lead that they were finding were were quite high in some schools. And so I think it's our lack of transparency mm -hmm. and being able to discuss these issues with lead that made that a, a big problem. Yeah. I know we voted as a as a you know in, in we voted to add on a tax so that we could put percentage into infrastructure for our schools, which mm -hmm. includes things like improving right. the HVAC system. Mm -hmm. But I think it also mm -hmm. helps to fund some of the piping infrastructure. And yeah. there were programs being put in place by Senator Cruz and so on to help replace some of the water fountains and that sort of yeah. stuff. And so I do feel that when that happened, though, we, we did not have sort of everyone at the table discussing mm -hmm. sort of what are the issues, because one of the challenges is, is the level of lead that should be, that we should have coming out of our tap. And yeah. so what is that particular level that is appropriate for schools? And some organizations are suggesting that it needs to be one part per billion. Mm -hmm. And some scientists are saying that even with the most advanced and best in um, piping material and faucet material, 
it will be difficult to get to anything like one or under wow. one PCB all the time. Mm-hmm. So I think having those discussions, you know, really important because can you imagine a parent with a young child and mm-hmm. you're saying, well, I have, you know, more than I have two PCBs. Uh, and so not really being able to grasp what two versus five right. might mean. Right. Uh, and, and then the cost uh-huh. associated with that, I think, becomes becomes yeah. a challenge and to speak of cities across the U.S. I mean, you could look at New Jersey, you could mm-hmm. look at Philadelphia, sure. many others. And then Washington had come, D.C. had come long before Flint. Um, so many have raised these issues. And as Dr. Cunningham said, these are occurring in many majority minority communities. Yes. Wealthier communities can afford to pay and replace their pipes. But mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. do not have, uh, fun- we have not put funding to just stay straight up we're going to replace the service lines, which were at one point required right. by our industry. Mm-hmm. But you had to have these types of, of lines. Uh, so we have not put the funding to replace them and expect communities that are that are economically challenged to somehow find the money to do it. Yeah. And, um, you know, although, as Dr. Cunningham said, um, it probably won't, wouldn't look like Flint maybe in Tampa, but we certainly can have the ramifications, as you talked about. Dr. Trotz and Dr. Cunningham. And also Flint, they're not completely healed, right, no. from this situation. Oh, I mean, no, far from it. I think. Far from it, right? Yeah. I mean, um, it, uh, both in terms of the sh- short term questions of um, is the water safe to drink? Yeah. Which there are still, uh, I don't think there's really a strong consensus on that. And then mm-hmm. uh, there may be long term um, health the, impacts right. on, on a number of the kids from that community. Right, that we'll probably be studying for a number of years. I expect so. Yeah. So I think even oh, even sure. more importantly, Karen, you know, and I have not been to Flint, Flint yeah. um, but just like looking at stuff online and in terms of the economic conditions mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. it once was quite a thriving community with yes. the auto industry. And so I think mm-hmm. it tells a tale for us that when we align with, say, one industry, that becomes our economic driver. Mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. happens when that industry collapses? Absolutely. And I think more and more mm-hmm. of our cities are going to experience this going into the future. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. you lost you lost jobs, you lost people. Of course. Therefore your water is staying in pipes longer also. Right. And um, I think it's it's a wake up call to other places of mm-hmm. what can happen when there mm-hmm. is a downturn. I think that's so evident when you look in the Northeast, so many cities, you know, that depended on steel or coal or whatever, you can take a look at what's happened there. Um, I'm from Pennsylvania, and certainly we've seen effects there. If you look in West Virginia, I mean, there's just a variety of effects when you do have that one industry. And I I know there are many industries in Florida. Uh, People don't know that we're one of the leaders in agriculture, for example. People think, oh, we're just tourism. But tourism is a big deal for Florida. And certainly with COVID-19, we have felt that in terms of uh, loss to, to many industries. Well, my next question is interesting. It's pretty much if, if you had your way or if you had a magic wand, what would you include for the state of Florida or even the nation in a public health environmental advocacy plan based on your research interests and if you could wrap climate change into that as well, and maybe what the community can do. What we hope to do from these podcasts, just to give you some information, is to gather all the information from our speakers and prepare an advocacy plan 
for the state in terms of what we heard from all of you and what might work in the future. So what would be in that plan, Dr. Cunningham? Carbon pricing. Okay, there you go. Number one. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think um, I think climate change is is the the big problem that we have to get a handle on yeah. before it's too late. Right. And I think the uh, I think the big way to get a handle on climate change is to uh, to recognize the cost of using fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Uh, we mm-hmm. have to uh, we have to transition away uh, from fossil fuels. And I think the way to transition away f- to, away from fossil fuels is to recognize the economic cost um, of the damage that's caused by using fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. And the, the problem with it, what's difficult is, you know, h- how do we know, right? If I, yeah. if I drive my car today and I burn one gallon of gasoline, yeah. how much damage did I cause? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you put a dollar value on that? And yeah. that's really difficult to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are people who make their whole careers trying to figure out what that dollar value is. Right. But... That's what I think we need to um, include, is we need to recognize that fossil fuel use of fossil fuels causes damage. We need to put a dollar amount on it. We need to mm-hmm. include that dollar amount in economic analysis or maybe in the price that you pay at the pump or the price that you pay on your electric yeah, bill. Good idea. Um, and it's in the short term, there's going to be some economic pain associated with that. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. in the long term, I think it's the only way to combat climate change. Um, and in the long term, I think we're going to save a lot, oh, sure. of, a lot of lives and a lot of dollars uh, if we do that. Yeah. So that's, that's number one on my wish list for, um, okay. for some sort of a plan. <laughs> Carbon pricing. Okay, Dr. Trotz, how about you? What goes into the environmental advocacy plan? Addressing sexual racism. Okay. I think if we could do that in each of our disciplines and also do it in partnership with our communities mm-hmm. within USF, Right. Each community, you know, communities around USF, around the state. Yeah. We would uncover and unpack how we have replicated um, bad practices in everything that we do that, that, that contributes to outcomes in education, health, all sorts of different things that would impair or limit our ability to tackle any challenge, mm-hmm. including... Mm-hmm climate change as we go into a world that requires deep decarbonization. Yeah. So even as, as Dr. Cunningham is saying, carbon pricing and thing, we still have to be mindful, right, of equity is what I think you're saying, right? And the, the structural racism. So even if you come to a solution, be careful that that solution isn't only for a select few, correct? It has to be, we have to have the system in place. We have to have everyone benefit from these solutions. Interesting. So now I'm going to turn it over to Rashmi a little bit more. Um, so Rashmi, you're of the student population, a little bit younger than maybe some of us here. <laughs> but you know, I have to say young individuals and students have been the drivers of so much public health policy and change recently. If you just look at racism, if you look at gun violence, if you look at March for Our Lives, if you look at so many things. So what is the pulse of the students? And I know that Dr. Cunningham and Dr. Trotz and myself, we have a lot of great students that work with us, are very interested. But in general, what do you think is the pulse of the students on environmental health? Do they care? Is this an issue they cared about and now they don't care about it anymore? You know, is it really something that they want to be part of for the solution? 
Yes, Dr. Willer. I feel that the students are really concerned about cl- the climate change and the adverse effects that are really happening mm-hmm. right now. And uh, environment health is an issue that s- students do recognize. They are trying to make individual efforts mm-hmm. and they're trying to change their habits on uh, how to prevent further environment uh, destruction and they are on our campus we are really thankful for the clean water that in the taps right. and in the fountains mm-hmm. that we get mm-hmm. um, and they also do appreciate the efforts that Dr. Cunningham and Dr. Trotz are doing to mitigate sure. this um, water crisis. So anything you want to add to that from from your students viewpoint Dr. Cunningham? Uh, uh, we get, you know, in, in environmental engineering, we get a lot of very um, passionate students. Sure. Um, so that's, it's very rewarding to work with students who are really, um, really dedicated to trying to improve the quality of people's lives around the world. You know, a lot of our students are very interested in working not only in the United States, but working abroad yeah. and, and helping, um, helping that, other yeah. communities address uh, whatever their particular challenges mm-hmm. might be. So it's, mm-hmm. um, that's a fun part of my job. Yeah, right. Dr. Trotz, how about your students? I think it's exciting because we promote a lot of interdisciplinary work Mm -hmm. and you see, I think through things like systems thinking and and community engaged work, you really see students in engineering asking questions more about how they can have better agency uh, for the work that that environmental engineers do, which leads them these days down the path of more policy. Excellent. You know, seeking opportunities there. Many are even going into organizations and institutions that advocate or do a lot yeah. more policy work. Mm-hmm. Some are realizing the importance of getting into politics mm-hmm. and influencing yes. that sphere directly. Mm-hmm. And others are, are moving into working with the nonprofits and, 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 and supporting like more grassroots initiatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that our students are really craving and driving us to address these issues and really proud of the more recent graduates who really advocating for addressing things like environmental and racial justice Mm -hmm. in their environmental engineering dissertation. I think that's so great. You're, you're preaching to the choir here though. (laughs) When you said advocating, I was like, Oh, that's so good. Absolutely. We need people. You know, I have a student now who, is very interested in environmental issues, is in public health, but certainly has a background in environmental health and definitely wants to run for office because he said, this is where change happens. And one thing in the activist lab, we promote that, right? Because we'd love to have more scientists in office uh, making decision either at the state or at the federal level. So it's just so interesting also about the interdisciplinary work. And I hope we can do more of that between the College of Engineering and the College of Public Health, because I think we can learn so much correct, from each other as we have the technical solutions, but then we figure out how to implement those and how to do those in communities and how to have communities accept these solutions, right? So it's a, it's a complicated process. It's not just we have the solution and everybody benefits because usually not the case. Yeah, I think, so. you know, and, and engineers kind of traditionally have seen um, technology as yeah. the solution to as problems. The solution. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I think we definitely recognize now that uh, technological, pu- purely technological solutions are almost always incomplete solutions yeah. and often fail, right? That, that, <laughs> that the technological part of the solution uh, may be an important aspect, but it's certainly yeah. 
not the only aspect. Right. Um, and and that we have to take into account um, how technology interacts with people if we want solutions to work. Absolutely. And, and with the economics, you know, my field is injury prevention for children and adolescents and trauma. And, and, and I've worked with a lot of companies over the years on products, you know, that so everyone can have safety, better cars, so that these uh, safety features in cars are implemented. But, the, but if you think about that, we'll say, oh, that's great. That'll be in every vehicle, but not everybody can afford a vehicle. So that goes back to, you know, the, that goes back to the issue. I mean, there are, there are still inequities and you still have to deal with that situation. You know, when we promote uh, car safety seats, for example, obviously for, for children, you know, a mainstay now, but not everybody can afford a card safety seat, mm-hmm. right? So, so what happens then? Do you have remedies? Do you have solutions for that? You know, uh, do you have giveaway programs? Do you have voucher systems? Do you have something where you can reach the population? So yeah, it's all, it's all very important. Um, so any other comments, Dr. Cunningham? Uh, just uh, thank you very much for having me today. No, it's so <laughs> great. It's so great to talk to folks from I love the College of Engineering and it's so great to work with you because together I think we can accomplish so much. And Dr. Trotz, what about you? I'm just so excited with your program, Karen. Uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Dr. Cunningham could speak to the term activism and activist as it's been applied to our field with some articles that were published in some of our top journals. Oh, fantastic. That, that we're pretty much against activism. And so it, right. it really evoked sort of uh, a, a rift at, at one point in time. And it was it was around Flint. Mm-hmm, and uh, mm-hmm. I remember our students reading the article and discussing it. And they just couldn't see that there should be a disconnect between right. the, the, our work and this term activism. And I right. do feel it means different things to different people. Mm-hmm, and that is mm-hmm. that is a challenge. So for a woman, or for a black woman, activism is just, it's to me, or for, of, I could see personally, it's just that's part right. of what it's you do. You've grown that's up right. doing it. Mm-hmm. And then here you are in this discipline telling you, you that, shouldn't you know, do that this is a bad <laughs> word. <Yeah. laughs> so when I saw you, uh, when I saw the activist lab, I was so happy <laughs> and I wish to encourage more and more of our students uh-huh. to listen to the podcast and to learn the skills that, that you are imparting, because I think that is really, it's really critical right. that we, we do more, more and more of it. Right. And you know, it's a field of its own, really. There are skills, there are strategies, there are theories behind it. We do more of the advocacy, if you will, more of the education and sort of that, whereas the activists, the activist is really out there. The activist is actually doing it in, you know, in front of groups and people. Um, but, but we uh, also do the advocacy, which is really about educating people to learn about the issues and how they can advocate for change. So I'm so glad. And, and I wish I could tell you that, you know, even in the college, everyone thought that the activist lab was a great idea. Why didn't we do it 20 years ago? Uh, no, we didn't get that <laughs> start of reception. There are some people that think, you know what, we're scientists and we're just put out the, the information and people have to decide. Right. Whether that's, they go with it, it's not. Why are we in this business of worrying about policy and solutions? Yeah, you know. yeah. The, you know, the model is that the scientists are, are disinterested. Disinterested. And we're uh, pursuing an objective truth. That's it. And then it's somebody else's job to figure out what to do with somebody that, else. To what to do with that objective truth. Right. Um, but I think you know. So you're talking to a couple of environmental engineers sure. here today, and we got How into environmental that? engineering because yeah. <laughs> because we right. we we want to affect a positive change, right? That's right. So if um, if we're not here trying to make the world a better place, then 
What's the point of any of it? What's the point of any of it? And and we can do all, you know, anything we do in the activist lab, as Rashmi knows and the students know, it's all evidence-based. We're not here to promote anything that doesn't have a strong scientific base to it. And that's what we do. And we take that solution and say, okay, how can it now be a policy change? How can we work with communities? But So that's what's important. You always start with the evidence. You always start with what's true. And uh, so, so we sort of go from there. But yeah, I think that is changing now. We've realized that leaving it to someone else hasn't worked very well, right? Because right? you are the scientist. We are the scientists. We're doing the research. Who knows better right. than us? I mean, we, we're doing it. We're seeing it every day. But then when we stop and put it in some esoteric journal, and our colleagues may read it, and our parents maybe, or our family, but who else? Where the, and, and then you leave change to people that don't know what they're doing. Right, that don't know the facts, don't know the science, and then it becomes all political. And Dr. Trotz gave an example earlier about, um, you know, if we're talking about lead levels in water, um, somebody who doesn't have the same training that we have might not know how to interpret the numbers that they're seeing. So if we're not involved in decision making, um, then we, you know, we we can't necessarily expect that uh, good decisions are going to be made. Absolutely, and I think we've seen they're not sometimes. So we need to be at the table. So yes, I really advocate for all of our students to run for office or do something with policy. If they don't want to run for office, just do something with policy change or at least put their voice out there um, when it's so needed. That's great. And you know, Karen, I wanted to add something else is we living through COVID-19 and you're seeing yeah. a disconnect in many places between public health and oh. environmental engineering oh, yes. or engineering, mm-hmm. in particular in how the, how the virus is spread when yes. you open your mouth, yeah. right? Whether mm-hmm. How the term that's used, whether it's aerosols or whether it's small and large particles. Yes. And so it's taken the CDC and the WHO a really long time mm-hmm. to re- acknowledge that it is, you know, the small, smaller particles that remain in the room right. are a problem. Mm-hmm. Whereas many of the our colleagues who, who study indoor air quality have been preaching and shouting and having to learn <laughs> how to speak and advocate for this. Uh, across multi, many different media spaces. Yeah. And still we don't have the proper equipment protection to ensure Correct. that our indoor spaces are safe for us to go to school, to mm-hmm. work, uh, to live with others. So I think that's a huge challenge. And I know the National Science Foundation mm-hmm. is sponsoring a series of workshops coming up, and okay. I'm, I'm, I'm on one of them. No? Uh, doing one of them, but it's on predictive intelligence for preventing pandemics. Mm. And interestingly enough, I'm on one from the social and behavioral oh. and economic division okay. where it's the anthropologists mm-hmm. and people dealing with, you know, misinformation sure. and, and, and public health that are really saying, well, where are the people and where are the integrative pieces that yes. have been missing yes. from how we address pandemic. Absolutely. And there's this whole field of communication, right? How to communicate the message. That's a whole field. And so we saw how miscommunication led to disaster pretty much with this whole COVID-19 with mass and, 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 and how we need to communicate that. Then there's the whole issue of health literacy, right? How do you commute to different audiences? It's not the same message for everyone. So, so yeah, there's a lot of work to do, but it's exciting to, to know that we, we are working together, as I said before, to come to these uh, better solutions. 
Well, if we have no more questions, then thanks so much. Uh, on behalf of the USF College of Public Health Activist Lab, our wonderful guests, Drs. Cunningham and Trotz, and our student co-host, Rashmi, we thank you for joining us. And hey, keep listening. We have new segments coming soon for our environmental health series. As always, we would love to hear from you. We want to know how we're doing. So please email us at cophactivistlab at usf.edu. So until next time, this is Dr. Karen Liller. Remember, find your voice. Let's change it up for the better. Keep listening and join Advocation Change It Up. Tell your friends and family we're on all media, Apple, Spotify, and more. So thank you again. And hey, when it's safe to be out and about, come see us in the Activist Lab.